Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special episode. Special episode. Uh, the first one of a special cycle. Special cycle. Of movie mumble episodes. Movie. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad Tim is being the whisper policeman. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm the keeper of the whispers. That's yeah. fine. Uh, it makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> this is a... Uh, this is a uh, You've gone with me every time but this one. This is a holiday-related cycle. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, in which we each pick our three favorite Halloween films. Halloween films. There we go. And, uh, um, you're going to get some extra movie mumble this month because you get the usual episode on the first weekend of the month, and then the second, third, and fourth are filled with more of us than you could ever handle. Or want, uh, or, or ask for. Or ask for, yeah. <laughs> our, our special Halloween episodes. So, uh, uh, we went in our standard order. Joel picked first, I'll follow up, and then Tim. And Joel brought us the classic, The Shining. The Shining. Uh, Halloween films are an interesting category, as we found. Because yeah. there are films like The Nightmare Before Christmas, that are, well, not just Halloween, but also Christmassy films, mm-hmm. but aren't exactly scary. And then there are horror films like, say, Alien, which is a great horror, but it's not exactly Halloween-y, mm-hmm. you know? There's, there's a sort of, they cover a wide range. Uh, we think we'll cover a decent chunk of that range, actually, mm. between the three of us. Yeah. So, Joel, The Shining. Yeah. You, you really, really agonized over the decision about what to show yeah, for the Halloween. It was episode. a list that was composed of seven, and then five, and then three and then one and then you said evil dead last episode and then that <laughs> totally screwed me up again um and like i had said before uh tyna and i had fought over this category like she has a very specific set of standards for what qualifies as a halloween movie mm-hmm. and i i i kind of just defaulted into something that i feel like watching every halloween and I think that's, that's been plenty good enough. the shining and this is only the second time I've watched it, so I'm I'm very oh, wow. new to kind of the scary horror genre. I like thrillers. I've seen a lot of those. It was my first time watching it all the way through. Really? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I've only made it part way before. Yeah. It's my first time watching it fully clothed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. First time watching it with other people. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. I know he didn't. Say, I was saying that for me, not not. I was I was saying that for myself. <laughs> I, it's interesting that I, just in terms of I I would think of Final Destination as very Halloween mm-hmm. driven, mm-hmm. almost. But I'm sorry, I sort of stepped back a little in our conversation. But I, The Shining wouldn't come to mind quite as immediately. But I, since it, it's what comes to mind for you when you want to watch something at Halloween, I don't know if after that's, that's plenty enough. This watching, if it will again, because it it's this movie messes me up, man. It's just so consistently tense, with really no respite. It, it just you see that's the reason I didn't finish it the first time. Mm-hmm. Is I don't feel any tension watching this movie. Really, I just I didn't. I don't know if it's because. You know, it was such a classic that it had been spoiled for me long before I watched that it. Could be, or if, or if it would have felt this way anyway. But I just didn't. You know, the whole long stretches of Jack creeping through the hallways with his axe, wondering if he's going to catch Wendy or Danny. I didn't like. I just I wasn't invested. Even um, where Holloran gets killed, mm-hmm. I, on the one hand, I was expecting like a showdown. He was going to see Jack across a room, right. you know, and. Or that he might find Danny or something first, or find Wendy. But I figured they'd see each other. 
So when Jack jumps out from behind that pillar and axes him, that was the biggest single shock I got in the entire film, and it was very effective. But because of what the film had done up through that point, I was so expecting anything else, anything less sudden, that I didn't have any tension while Halloran was walking around. Because I felt certain that whatever was going to happen, he'd have to, he'd get to see it coming, you know? Gotcha. So it sort of, that gave me the best jump and also sort of ruined itself in a, in a way. And that bit, I, and I don't know why. I can't, I can't tell you why. Because it's a, it's a gloriously made film. Cinematography is astounding. Everyone puts out a wonderful performance. The sets are glorious. You know, everything about it is well made. Um, I would argue not, that, not a problem with the film. I, I would argue that for some reason, for me... Just something isn't clicking. Hmm. Um, I want to stress also that there are other films we've already watched on this podcast that I've liked less when the film finished and the podcast started. Um, and then you guys have turned me around on them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistic here. But yeah, it's interesting that you... Because I, I got it. I was, I was watching, oh, you know, he's walking slowly. Oh, the music is, is building. Oh, etc. Like, I saw all the ingredients for tension building and then just wasn't feeling it. For some reason, I feel like it, it. Like, sorry, I didn't mean no, to start no, off. No, that's just, okay. Like, instant killjoy. No, the episode. I mean, but the, the first thing you said was the tension, and I was like, all right, I, there was I gotta, no tension. Yeah. Change my mind. <laughs> I mean, I mean, please, I'm hoping you will. Well, the whole the, the thing is like this is a movie that has been discussed ad nauseum. So, like, mm. to start out on something, a, a point of contention about it is totally valid and a great way to start. Mm. I think the way the music is used in this film, like, that's oh, what yeah. gets me. More than anything that's on screen is mm-hmm. that just it's it's executed to the nth degree of that kind of jump scare, primer, tension building sound. It's 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 something like it, it seems like Hans Zimmer watched this and was like, This is how I will live my life. This is the tension I will create in everything I've ever made. And one day it will be a trailer trope. And after that it'll be a trailer trope forever. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't that that's what gets me about it, is just this it's also just it's so drenched in mystery still. Yeah. I mean I I don't know if reading the novel would shed light on much as loose an adaptation as this is or has claimed to be, I think. I I, I don't know. And I don't know if I want all those questions answered. Yeah, I know know there are enough differences that that they're... Two different things. Yeah. Because that king in the book gives some firmer explanation Mm -hmm. in places the film leaves ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, And I... No, I I just did... The music I kept noticing and loving, and that was that was great. The body language on everybody just it just captured me the whole time. Visually, I had nothing else to look at. It couldn't I would couldn't if I wanted to right. because they were all really just showing. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know what it was because I I love that kind of movie, right? Blade Runner, Drive, Nightcrawler, The Neon Demon, even Chinatown, even though it's less horror in Chinatown. They're they're all this slow burn, you know focus on every frame really carefully just ratcheting the tension up like once every 10 minutes until it all just snaps and I love every one of those films they really resonate with me except this one I, I'm, I can see all the same pieces on the screen but I'm not feeling it I'm like you know we're, we're eating we're eating cake and today the one you served me I put it in my mouth and I chew it and there's no flavor there and it looks the same and it feels the same and it smells the same but I just can't taste it for some reason. 
you know? Well, I wonder if part of that is because, yeah, like, you know, maybe Kubrick was one of the first people to do that. You know, you look at, you know, back to like 2001, so much of it is just sitting on a shot for like a minute or yeah. two, you know? And then, you know, and I feel like that was one of the big things I noticed with this is that a lot of the, a lot of the scenes were very static. And part of, I think, what made me first realize that is a lot of the dialogue. Like, how much of it gets repeated? Like, that, that scene when Halloran's walking down the hall. Hello, is anyone here? Hello, is anyone here? Mm-hmm. So you get kind of just stuck, and it's like, okay, here's this hall with a person and this one little line of dialogue. And you're sitting in that... And yeah, it's almost like a snapshot. Mm-hmm. You know, until, boom, here's this thing from around the corner. Um, you know, kind of same thing when... Not you to... Know, I, man, I'm just... I'm, my job is Captain Killjoy today. You're um, shitting on it. Shitting not to on shut the shining. But uh, Chinatown came six years before The Shining. But was it before 2001? I haven't seen 2001. Which I, but, which uh, I think was. I, I think this. We were, so I was talking about that with some of the other. I think that was like. 2001 late 60s. was 68. Yeah. So, yes, before Chinatown. So, Kubrick, you know, and, and, and you know, again, not that it's a contest of who did it first, but. You know that I think that was maybe something that he had established and carried through. Even even moments in Eyes Wide Shut, you know, like you're just sitting. A film. You're just sitting in these scenes for so long and just like letting them wash over you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's one of the things that he does a lot too with with the music purposely. Like I noticed that this time um, that a lot of the music he chooses, it's just these like textures. You know, there's no there's no melodic material. You know, it's very much not a John Williams score. You know, like you're sitting in these textures, and there isn't this sort of like amp. It's more like stairs. You know, like okay, we're gonna uh, yeah. It's not like a, a hill, which is a gradual climb. It's like okay, we're on this plateau. We're gonna hang out here for a while. Okay, now we're on a different plateau, and there's the, yeah, there's this sense of almost that. Yeah, each shot is like a picture. And I also thought it was kind of neat. There are times where they show all these photos on a wall. You know, and it was almost like looking at it that way, like like the Stations of the Cross. Like, here's one section where it's a meditation on this one image. Okay, now we're going to move to this next image, and now it's a meditation on this image. And, and yeah, it's like a very different way. I remember hearing someone saying that, that, that repetition can be a way to build tension, as opposed to... This idea yeah. of moving forward and adding things on top of it. And I feel like that was a big part of it is, I think, the idea that it lulls you in with this repetition yeah, that you I mean, start and, to expect what's going to happen. Normally I love that. And I have lots of other yeah. films that do that that I love. But yeah. it, didn't, it just didn't happen here for some reason. And that's fine. I don't know why. You have no answers for me. Why did <laughs> I come here? Um, uh, Poor Shelley Duvall. Ooh, yeah. Damn, though, you can really see the suffering all over her face. The performance of that character in this is so genuine, and no one else could convey that the way she does. But it's because Kubrick was a fucking asshole (laughs) and just terrorized her. I mean, I. Like, yes, he did that. Yes, it happened. But I. And her performance was astounding. But I feel like I've seen equally flooring performances from people who didn't have to be tortured by their directors, you know? Like who? So, um, well, actually, since we're talking about it, um, just the 10 seconds of Patrick Swayze waking up at the end of Donnie Darko conveys so much weight and emotion, more than some actors can do in an entire film. And, you know, Kubrick didn't have to torment him 
to make Donnie Darko. Um, the whole... Oh my god, I've, I, all, all day today I've been losing names and films and people, but um, the whole bit with... Um, I'll, just, I'll have to come back to it, but just that Shelley Duvall put me in mind of these these other performances mm-hmm. while I was watching this. I just I just feel like I almost feel voyeuristic and bad watching this film because of mm. the knowledge that she was tormented and that mm-hmm. this this great character and this this very vulnerable, very raw performance that's was created out of that is kind of like this damaged good you know mm. this idea that it, it came from such a dark place and she didn't act again right that that's the th- well uh, yeah I, I actually never heard about that can you elaborate just for the sake of you oh, know people yeah, okay. who don't know about the history of that I, I just know that again Kubrick is the, the the man of a thousand takes and he wants everything so precise mm-hmm. and Although he was with, yelling and berating her with her in particular it was yeah it was really bad especially uh, like in between scenes talking to Jack kind of about uh, 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 scene input about like how he wants shot setting I've been ignoring her just kind of like leaving her alone and emotionally berating her oh, damn and almost like forcing her to be like a method actress about it like yeah. like yeah, I mean, oh yeah I, we're gonna really hammer this point home that you're isolated and alone there's definitely you know has been a his- not a history but just you know treating an actor in a certain way to get a performance out of them or what have you has mm-hmm. thing that happens we'll say but I absolutely think Kubrick crossed a line, or a number of them, in his treatment of Shelley. That's kind of the classic the example of, like, mm-hmm. just the worst way to treat an actor. Mm-hmm. And just... And that's the thing. I, I almost feel like n- most of this so movie is not performed. I listings after The Shining for her. Okay. So how Was it, like, long time afterwards? Um, well, we're all the way up to a couple of TV episodes in 1986, a film in 1995. It looks like a minor role. Okay. Considering it's just called Nurse. Here we go. Okay. Countess Gemini, Portrait of a Lady, 1996. So for a good, good while, yeah. Yeah. It's just... Nice, and- I guess, to know that she... It she wasn't knew it broken was him in her, and not right. the career. And it, it's just like I, I think about how terrifying Jack is just to watch in this, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that kid sleeps at night. Yeah, like I mean, for for a grown adult, like to to act separate from him and know that okay, this is Jack Nicholson. This is his method. This is how he's doing. It. Kubrick is this other thing, but for a kid, is like this is a terrifying guy. This is a a very scary, a lot of scary imagery and things that you're working with. And for a kid at that point to give such a solid performance and be so consistent and kind of, I don't know if that kid did anything afterwards, but it's, it's just terrifying to think about this guy played your dad yeah. <laughs> and you're very young and it, he's very, very scary. I, I don't, it's, it's, I feel kind of emotionally broken from having watched it this time. I, I don't know quite what it is. I think it might be a different coming at it with a different layer of of empathy. You know, like like you're saying, like not just you, you know you can empathize for the torture that characters are going through, but then when you take a step back and be like, well, wait, these are actually real people, real actors doing this. 
like yeah what did that do to them not only to the characters you know and and yeah i think we were saying at one point like jack nicholson looks scary from like scene one like there's never a point where it's like oh look he's a nice dad it's just like oh fuck like you know that part in the car when they're driving up and the kid's like oh i didn't i'm hungry well, you should have thought of that before you skipped your breakfast, which, you know, maybe to some degree that's just like, well, it's just a cranky dad on a long road trip, right. you know, but like... If Jack's your cranky dad, that, yeah. that's a, a <laughs> different level. Him, uh, from Wikipedia. Duval eventually became so overwhelmed by the stress of her role that she became physically ill for months. At one point, she was under so much stress that her hair began to fall out. Oh, God. Yeah, it, it, was, it, it was bad. It was and, beyond hazard pay. And that you know? was... Which didn't strike me the first time I was watching, but I couldn't stop thinking about it this time, about how, you know, physically ill she looked throughout the film. Yeah. And she's just this... this. I, I love her face. I love her look. She's so, like... I love her teeth. There's this this just... You want to comfort her. There's yeah. this, this quality about her and th- this vulnerability and this kind of selflessness in how she plays this character. And it, it just kept coming up. It was like, I know what's coming. I know how scared she was. I know how sucky this experience was for her. And it just, I I don't know. It's just this added layer. It's making me physically ill thinking about it. I don't know. <laughs> and I think that's another reason that this movie, because it's so tense for me, mm-hmm. and the reason I want to watch it around Halloween or have in the past has been because it, it's it's physically exhausting it, it, I feel like and it's long so I try to make it an event like okay I'm gonna watch it here and it gives me kind of a year to recuperate <laughs> for that's it true. that's true that's well a good decision too though to make your slow film long and I guess it happens mm-hmm. a lot with slower paced films but it definitely feels like a slog through the snow mm-hmm. and you know which is something we see visually three or four times throughout yeah. the film even just the idea of like how long they're going to be there, I feel like they do a good mm. job of making you feel the time by I things moving by so slow. So slowly, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also like how the the rate at which they keep track of time, um, it's sort of an artificial way of kind of like amping the momentum, where it's like a month later, yeah, Tuesday, Thursday. Eight o'clock, right. five which, o'clock. Which you know. Thursday now? Yeah. Thursday yeah. after the Tuesday yeah. in our month. I mean, that's well done because the time, the keeping track of the time begins to just unravel the longer right. you're there, the longer you're in the film. Mm-hmm. This one, I was feeling bad for the uh, poor uh, production typist who had to do uh, yeah. all work and no play on a typewriter <laughs> in all those yeah. different forms because mm-hmm. at one point like it stanzas going down yeah. and then a quotation and, and there's then... no copy and paste then no not and you can see like the typos too yeah. it's like the, this it, it's so consistent mm-hmm. that's 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 the thing like that being said about Shelley Duvall the, the product what watching this thing it's just like every frame is perfect like yeah those those sweeping landscape shots as you come in as he's going to the hotel for the first time that mountainscape in the winding road is you just ever wanted to make a place look isolated no Ooh, kidding. Boy, they did it and i know it's been said a billion times and will be again but the steady cam damn great yeah. work mm-hmm. which was a fairly new invention at the time right it was pretty, i think so pretty I, recent it, 
yeah. if I'm not mistaken. If not pioneered by him, at mm-hmm. least like refined by him. Yeah, and it's all those shots of them in the maze and uh, Danny on his little trike, yeah. big wheel thing. Mm-hmm. All just beautiful and a, sweeping motion. The, the tension for the, when he's on the, the big wheel, mm-hmm. the sound of him going over carpet to, carpet tile, to wood, yeah. carpet to wood. Mm-hmm. And then I remember he turns around and sees the, the girls. The girls, yeah. And Every like as soon as he's on the wheel, I'm like, oh crap, is that yeah. coming yet? Like oh every my corner, god! Yeah. Like yeah. it just and like you said, Tim, about the repetition because you see him in it, like three sequences doing that before they show up. So it's like it's it's having watched it already, knowing it's coming, but also it reestablishes. Okay, it's not this time. Okay, it's not this. T- oh, there it is. It like it it was. I don't know. There, there was false sense of security in the structure of repetition. See, that's I, I think you've opened a door because I, that's part of why I didn't feel any tension because, something would happen the first time, nothing happens, and then as soon as we see it a second time, I go, oh, okay, well, something's gonna happen now, something's gonna jump out at us, something's gonna appear, mm-hmm. and it happens with the wheels, it happens in the maze, it happens a few times. I mean, we, you know, you said repetition happens a lot in the mm-hmm. film, so like as soon as something happens twice. I know it's going to be interrupted. Hmm. And that sort of took the jump away from when the girls did show up or what have you. Although, specifically to the the wheels thing, the first time we see it, the sound is off. When he goes onto the hardwood floor, we don't get the floor sound until he's most of the way to the next stretch of carpet. Like, they didn't line up right. I don't know why I noticed that. I noticed it immediately. Yes, only the very first time. Because the second time on, they fixed it. I noticed I was paying attention and the switches were on but that first time they were not there and it just completely threw me there were actually a few other times I feel like where the audio didn't match like where there was people would be speaking and it would be like slightly off from what they were saying or like you know that I didn't feel like at all Hmm? do you think that could be a streaming buffering I was wondering about that because I know that that happens sometimes yeah where like if if it's not yeah if it's too slow the audio will stay on but the picture is slightly behind but then once the streaming catches up I didn't notice that at all I didn't have any trouble with dialogue it was just that one time on his strike thing and I mean that might just be a product of it being on iTunes and streaming it rather than having downloaded it or or on a disc but anyway but yeah, I just and I, again, I like I like other films with repetition because it gets better every time, you know. Because the second time you're like, "What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen?" And then it doesn't. And so the third time comes up, you're just like pulling your hair out because something's gotta happen. And is it gonna be Liscor or Liscor? And I and again, it works for me in other films, but it just didn't work here for some reason. I became like a well, this is the third time, so is it gonna happen now or the eighth time? Oh, it happened now. Okay. Like, well, I, wonder, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what they're doing differently. It didn't. Well, I know part of it for me too, it. and I think we mentioned this, help, like help that me. it had been sort of parodied and discussed at length. Like there were certain scenes where I was thinking of the Simpsons parody of this. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the part the where he's coming up the stairs. Give me the bat, Marge. Give me the bat. Give me the bat, bat, bat. You know. So the whole time when he's slowly yeah. going up the stairs after her, like that wasn't tense at all because I was picturing Homer Simpson in that scene. So that kind of pulled me out of the tension of that scene. Um, you know, I wonder if that's... I, I, the more we talk, the more I think it might be that, that I had essentially watched the film without watching it. See, and that's yeah. the thing. Like, that's because how I experienced Godfather and you know? Godfather 2, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. By the time I had finally gotten to it, it had no effect because I had seen and knew all the because elements. Because even other movies like Citizen Kane or Star Wars, when you see the famous scenes get 
mimicked somewhere else. Mm. It's never more than one or two scenes. Unless you're Robot Chicken and it's Star Wars. <laughs> but, like, it's never more than one or two scenes, and there's no context, and you don't necessarily know what's going on. Right. You know, Planet of the Apes, it's the, you blow it up, you know, damn yeah. you. But, like, that's it. So then when you go watch the whole movie, mm-hmm. the whole Citizen Kane slash Star Wars slash Planet right. of the Apes, there's the whole rest of the plot that unfolds. Right. And when you finally get to that scene, you go, oh, this was that scene. Right. But, like, The Shining, I've seen I've seen the girls, I've seen the elevator, we've seen the, the bat in The Simpsons, mm-hmm. I've seen him frozen in the maze. That, seen, that has been memed seen, too many times to have yes. any effect. Once I yeah. finally, like, every time, it just kind of feels like a I've bad the, note at the I've end of the, the song. I've seen the full ballroom mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the empty bar, yeah. both full and empty. I've seen the, right. the, the woman in the bath. Like, all those things have been done everywhere else a million times. Yeah. I think, like, because I'm coming late to the game with horror movies, I didn't see a whole lot of those parodies. I mean, I'm not a Simpsons fan. I haven't really yeah. watched too much of it. I mean, the most I'd seen is a Bob's Burgers episode where Coochie Kopi is the bartender. <laughs> and he's trapped in the yes, wall. Yes, I just saw That's that right. Right? last month. So, right. like, that was kind of the extent of the references I had seen of it. I mean, I've seen the Here's Johnny part, oh, but yeah. I hadn't seen him creep up the right, stairs with the baseball one. bat. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, so seeing it for the first time, I felt like I was seeing it for the first time. And, like, mm. it, it has maintained that because I haven't seen it lampooned yeah. to the nth. Because I, yeah, cause it, and, it, and not just that it's been a million times, but that it's been every damn piece of the film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That might have solved. That explains really it. Yeah, yeah, we might have figured it out. And I've, I don't know if I've mentioned on podcast before or just personally, but horror films in particular, I have trouble rewatching because once they're spoiled for me, mm. I like, I sort of lose personal investment in the characters who are dead right. and the characters who weren't. You know. Yeah. Um, Alien doesn't do that, thankfully, right. but the thing definitely did. Right, you every said, subsequent you watching that. has yeah. been less interesting for me. That's one I haven't seen. Um, we should, yeah, we should fix that. Mm. Which the thing was great the first time, still good the second, and then eventually I just sort of found it tired. I because I, I don't know, I don't know why. I guess horror is especially vulnerable to that mm-hmm. because you're always wondering who lives and who dies, right. and you're always wondering why things are happening. You know, whereas if you go into an action movie, you're almost expecting the hero to win the day and come right. out unscathed. And he can do that a million times, and it's never any less interesting mm. because the movie is flashy and exciting. You know, it's the reason we can watch Indiana Jones a thousand times <laughs> because it's exactly what it's supposed to be. But horror tends to, you know, so 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 much of horror when it's, and not necessarily it's not every surprise. film is like this. No, but yes, but yeah. so much of it is dependent on the, the first journey, the unknown. I mean, it's a, a similar construction for plot twists, right? The, yeah. The, the thing. Oh that, yeah. Shyamalan movies are good the first time because oh my god and it's yeah. good the second time because oh I can pick up on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. but every subsequent time after that you're like okay certainly you've got but I mean it, it, I still enjoy this and I think having the distance from it and not having seen it parodied so much and just having a year in between each washing of it it, it makes it new each time which is cool and I mean if you turned off like the sound, right? Or mm. remove the character, like just watching every just frame of it being is in that just place insane. Was eerie, yeah. yeah. Just looking around the architecture, the design, the space was yeah. uncomfortable. I really like the tracking shots of like when he, they're taking him around and showing him all the different places with his family, and they're walking t- 
past the staircase and it follows them through or when they go into the gold room it's like pat through the wall like those tracking shots will really give you a sense of the space mm-hmm. and it's also really interesting kind of the how mundane it seems when everybody's there even when they're packing up it doesn't seem all that eerie yeah and then the second everybody's gone it's like this has weight the echoes are just yeah. like space everything. designed for large numbers of people right when empty just feels soulless man yeah. mm-hmm. and then that different that line about we just brought a decorator to do this section of the bu-, you know gives it gives reason for why the building is such a mess it's it's inconsistent with itself. Right. There are larger spaces and smaller spaces and smaller places where larger ones should be and larger ones that weren't divvied up enough and the the decor is, you know, which decade am I in now as right. you walk from room to room? That just the nature of the space itself is unsettling, disorienting. That was well communicated for sure. Yeah. The yeah. the the sequence that kind of hit me really hard this time was the tennis ball coming through and hitting his toys. Yeah. Like, as soon as he brought the car in to be perfectly symmetrical, it rolled in. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot imagine how many shots yeah. that took. And for a kid to be engaged that right. whole time and to get it precise, because it's like the ball would be off a square inch and then he wouldn't be there in time. Like, yeah. I, that was Plus insane. Kubrick being Kubrick. Right. Yeah. On top of that, and Mr. That's the Mr. Thing, Mr. Did he treat a kid as shitty as she, he did Shelley Duvall? Uh, well, like, see, I can't the, imagine. The section like, in Wikipedia I read mentioned that Jack found him, Jack Nicholson found him found him pleasant to work with. Yeah. But Jack Nicholson in the same sentence, same breath, said that didn't happen with him and Shelley. Mm-hmm. Like, he made it clear. Right. That, you know, it was person-to-person right. basis. So I, I don't know. I, I certainly doesn't guarantee that he treated... Yeah. The kid poorly. But, um, it reminds me of uh, well something Terry Gilliam had said about co-directing uh, Python and the Holy Grail is that the man who because he, he did all the animations on the show, mm-hmm. and he said the man who once commanded paper to move was now having to ask actors to move in very specific ways and trying to find the vocabulary to be courteous and just like mm-hmm. I feel like Kubrick would have worked really well with an animation or something where right. he was not dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like like the way um, uh, George Lucas was working on on the prequels. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing how he would sort of t- do like a split screen where there would be like two people and like oh no in this scene this person walked up a little too soon so I'm actually going to do split screen and take their take from a different scene mm-hmm. and kind of split screen them in with this other actor so it's two different performances at two different times that he's like matching up together yeah. and was like you know sort of like micromanaging every little movement. You know, after the fact, with all the digital stuff, and and that's the thing. Like, it, part of you wants that in a director. They want to be very specific about those things. But mm-hmm. the other part of me wants Clint Eastwood, who's like, he doesn't say action, he doesn't say cut. He said, "When you're ready, mm-hmm. that's enough of that." Yeah, like this rolling, right? Yeah. In, <laughs> uh, in the, there's certain, I mean, different kind of filmmaking, different kind of subject matter. But the idea that like you've hired these professionals for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Like you trust in their abilities. So what? Getting them to jump through different hoops doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if you've seen them do other things and you like them for those reasons. And it's just, I don't know. Are people like that? Any like, is there a Kubrick esque like tyrant anymore in filmmaking? I, I don't know. I don't think anybody has a public persona like that anymore. Well, who is the one? And uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, the director of uh, I Heart Huckabees. Because there was the whole thing in one of the Mike Birbiglia stand-ups where he's talking oh, about... Oh, right. And, like, 
he was supposed to present an award to that director, uh-huh. and what he did in his speech was this quote of him screaming at uh, what's her name, the the woman who's in, um, the one who played the Incredible Shrinking Lady. What's her name? I don't remember. Uh, what the hell? Uh, anyway, um, but like you know, he's he ends up like screaming at her in one scene, you know, and. I think a clip of that got on the internet. So Mike Birbiglia like read the quote of what he was screaming at her yep. as he's like presenting this award to yeah. this guy. And one of the lines was, I'm just trying to help you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, because there are certainly still directors and actors and people of all cloths in the industry that are difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. But that's it more in the truth of the phrase difficult to work with than in the... the um, What's the word I want? The um, the innuendo, not the innuendo. The um, implication. No, it's well. Anyway, rather than in the sort of cover-uppy way of uh, right. of Kubrick. Of, oh well, he's difficult to work with. Well, yeah, I think you the know. the most recent example of it would be Tambor in Arrested Development, just fucking berating uh, Lucille. I yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, just like I don't know, that really <clears throat> still makes me sick to my stomach. I just it's like we. We've recognized the line of, you know, the difference between difficult to work with and not acceptable. Mm. And it's, you know, the line's being pushed. Yeah. But, well, that's the thing. Kubrick doing think, that I, now I, yeah. would not fly. I mean, I would hope. Yeah. You know. Well, I was, I was, what I was looking up with my phone there a second ago was um, The Shining was put out before the Twilight Zone accident happened. What's the Twilight um, Zone accident? When they were making the Twilight Zone movie, they were filming a segment in, um, with a helicopter. And there was a the accident, and it killed Vic Morrow and two children, I think. Jesus, shit. I, I still have it on my phone that I just put down for no reason, despite deciding I'm going to talk about it. Um, killed three people on the ground, yes, Vic Morrow and two child actors. And um, it was a huge scandal. Um, the safety standards that there were, which weren't many, right. were being completely ignored. Gotcha. Um, and so it led to almost a decade of legislation and massive overhauls in the rules around filmmaking gotcha. especially regarding children yeah. and um, in the rules around what directors can tell people to do and what actors must must or must not do gotcha. um, the reason the Directors Guild and, and Screen Actors Guild have uh, they, it says they set up phone hotlines they could call to get answers to safety questions on the spot Wow! but only after that and that was right. so um I want to get the year right, and I have no memory today. Happened in 1982. Really, as late as that? Yeah, right. Wow. And I don't. I mean, not not so much. I can tell from a quick Wikipedia and my prior reading. So, so this is an extremely loose presumption. But my my presumption was that since there was a lot of, even what rules there were before that, which were apparently not many, weren't were, being no weren't being yeah followed gotcha. generally. So. This is making me think of like Jackie Chan's movies, where writing, directing, choreography, Ooh, and yeah. starring in it. So the idea that but then the even director, there, yeah, he could do, he could you know agree to do with himself right. whatever he wanted and that to was do the, to himself. That's, that's something about like you I, as a director, you have this vision, but there's something different when you're stepping out in front of the camera, yeah, and then putting yourself through that. That sends a message to everybody else on set. You have this different dynamic, right, as yeah. a participant in these ridiculous difficult things you know I don't know and I mean 
Jackie broke every bone in his body twice, you know? Yeah. Like... And even then, I there's a, a little bit of a difference between... I, I mean, Jackie nearly died a few times. Yeah. But there's a bit of a difference between, you know, you'll break some bones. Right. And uh, I've abused you through this entire yeah, film. Yeah, no, for sure. Seriously, through the entire year of principal photography, yeah. you know. Well, I was just thinking stunt specific. Yes, but yeah, stunt specific. Twilight Zone yeah. thing. Absolutely. But, yeah. That was something that happened in one of the with one of the Ghost Rider films. A stuntman takes a bike up a ramp, and instead of landing in the water, it completely overshoots. And it lands on actual ground. Jesus. And the big lawsuit went out, but I, I just that one was particularly interesting. Those films are much more recent, mm. and it was where does the liability lie with right. the director who you know plans with, the stunt plans or... everything out with the stunt coordinator right. who who, you know, set everything up with the safety team who checked the bike with the guy who did the math on how fast right. the bike was going yeah. and how where the ramp needed to be. Or is it a stuntman's with error? With the production company? You know, I mean, yeah. who knows? Like, because, so, you know, all of those directors, stunt coordinator slash coordinators, all of their assistants, safety check, the stunt people, the production company, all of those groups have fingerprints on safety measures. Right. Some of which overlap and some of which don't. So that the idea is that any number of these things can fail, and as long as one of them stays in place, safety is maintained. Right. You know, it's the redundancies on redundancies on redundancies, as much as possible, right. always. So, so for that to have happened at all is, you know, just finding out who to sue is sort yeah. of a question. Especially post-82, um, as you were saying. Yeah. yeah. But, uh... It's, yeah, Kubrick definitely comes up a lot in terms of directors who are hard to work with but who achieve things no one else does but I have to wonder if 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 he would do as well today because Tarantino's you know can be hard to work with yeah but he has such a difficult right but he works with a very specific group of people now true right and but even I mean he he I think it was recently issued some apologies about some things that went on during Pulp Fiction involving safety and I think really um or was it Kill Bill? There was a particular stunt, and I think it was Uma Thurman who did it and got hurt. And huh. you know, she had felt too uncomfortable to say no. She was saying, and mm. and he issued an apology of, yeah, you know, I, I'm extremely zealous and enthusiastic, and yeah, you know, people get afraid, and you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I pushed you into that. Like he just he said it. Done. I and, mean, in Tarantino's way, but no, he yeah. said it straight up. He said the phrase, "I'm sorry." <laughs> Um, you know, for for doing that to you, yeah. for making you, for pressuring you, was the phrase I read. I, assuming where I read it was, you know, did their work and didn't right. stick quotes on some random shit. But uh, but like in that sense, you know, his his difficulties in work seem to be more associated with achieving the vision, right, and and sort of a, a high intensity, right, production. I'm sure Kerry Washington didn't appreciate. Leo's blood on her face. Oh, yeah. Django. I mean, like, I mean, again, a great scene, great for that character, yeah. but I imagine that was not something she had signed on for, yeah. and Tantino's like, yeah. You know, I've heard, I've heard <laughs> both the, that that's yeah. real and that's not real. I don't even know anymore. Right. But, but yes, regardless, you know, or even speaking of DiCaprio, just his scene in uh, The Revenant with the bear and the meat yeah. and everything, I mean, that's. You know, there's this constant sort of actors get asked to do 
extremely difficult things right. and they all have their own different points they'll say yes and no and but my point being that there seems to have been some some adjustment with Tarantino I guess right. over and the I, years I, I feel like nowadays it's more you know what you're getting into right like that is I feel like with the Revenant and in Yurito's films he's like this is the vision that I'm having we're going to try and shoot it with natural lighting we're going to be in the real like mm -hmm. the, we're going to try and make this this experience and you're going to be cold and you're going to be wet and those kinds of things I mean imagine in contracts these are these are pretty specific you know I don't yeah. ideally I don't yeah that's true I'm sure there are times where that doesn't happen. No, but, for but sure. Ideally, but. Yeah, I just as opposed to, you know, when Kubrick was making films and yeah. things were even more loose. That's the thing. Like I imagine Kubrick was like, I want Shelley Duvall because she has this look. I need that look, and I'm gonna just twist and bend and get her to do what I want her to, regardless of how comfortable she is with it. Jack's mm -hmm. gonna do what I want because he's creepy as hell, and that's the texture I need from him. I don't know. I, I feel like Kubrick's more painter than he is organizer or inspirer. You know, he's commanding these things to do, be happen. He's yeah. committing them to canvas in a certain way. I don't know. But I just, but yeah, it's interesting to because you know there are always um, those kinds of forces yeah. behind behind a camera. And it's we talked about the the line about what's acceptable an acceptable level of uncomfortable for mm -hmm. on a set has right. been changing, and it just it's it's curious to wonder if Kubrick would still be making films nowadays. I mean, Woody Allen or to is. the same caliber. Well, see, but that's what I mean about you know Woody Allen was able to make his films sort of separate from. What I'm saying is like a dickhead director who's okay, right? That's, that's what I'm saying. That's not what I mean. I mean right. like that. Would Kubrick even be able to get a finished product nowadays? That's fair. Because he wouldn't be allowed to do the right. things he wants to do no, in that, the film. Okay. Yeah, that's involved yeah. with the actual production specific things, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, not not could he still be a dickhead, you know, off the clock. Right. Like the answer to that is yes. Right. Um, yeah. but uh, the answer being that, you know, the the horrible things he had to do during production Nope, can't do those anymore, mm -hmm. so how are you going to make your movie? Although, since he did continue to make films, he had Full Metal Jacket, right? It was late 80s, wasn't that? I think It was so. well after Twilight Zone. And so maybe, what, yes. What they do on screen in that film is pretty yeah. <laughs> scary. Although the 80s had its own infatuation with, with, with shocking imagery. That's fair. You know, we see that in Robocop and... and uh, oh, in a film I can't name because I have uh, memory loss today, but... Um, <laughs> We see that in a lot of eighties films, that mm. sudden sudden just explosion of visual of blood everywhere yeah. and stuff and so I don't know. It's even though we see that elevator scene three times in this film, it's spectacular. I mean Yeah. That just the fluid dynamics at play are spectacular to watch. Yeah. I You can hear it even yeah, though there's no there's sound. There's no sound. You can hear it even though there's no sound. See that was one of the things that I kind of thought was like by the time we see it at the end with Shelley yeah like yeah. I I personally thought it didn't have as much impact because we had seen the full scene play out already like I, I almost wish there were hints because of it because Danny had seen that future yeah like times. kind of yeah like kind of like the door opening and you get this little hint of blood and then it cuts off not the full blood dumps out to the point where the couch is moving and covers the camera like by the time you saw it with Shelley like it was it was almost I 
almost yeah, verbatim like, to at least one of the yeah. times we had seen it, it was, before. Oh yeah, was like, she's seen the elevator thing. That yeah, like now it's so, happening. Oh, now, yeah. yeah, now it's happening. Yeah. This is the problem I was having with like half the things that happened. Yeah, but or like yeah. you know if if he had yeah. even done something where all of Danny's visions were in black and white, and this is the first time we see it in color, yeah. like yeah. that would have been like holy fuck in living you know? color. Yeah, like, or in dead color. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and one of the other things I thought of too that I was kind of like. Um, because the the scene when, uh, when they're in the the maze at the towards the beginning, it kind of clicked at the end when when Jack is chasing him through the maze. Like, oh, like he's been out playing in the maze with his mom. That's how he knows his way around yeah. the maze. But I wish that from a from a bigger picture to really tie in, you know, the the shining, the power that he has that would have been one of the foreshadows like towards the beginning and maybe there was this i couldn't remember i was thinking like i feel like it would have stood out to me but they're whenever they're playing in the maze it's always like green so it would have been cool at some point to like flash it with like covered in snow to give the sense of he had this premonition of being out in the snow in the maze and having to know his way around Mm -hmm. and that's why he wanted to play out in the maze but like his shining didn't really help if, if, if that's not the case his shining didn't help him get out of this it was just right. sort of there's like there's a lot about plot know. communication that get for this film in particular that got determined in the editing room by what they chose to leave in and what they chose to leave out and how mm-hmm. they chose to cut things together in what order like Danny's visions yeah which is actually I think a discussion we're going to have again when we watch my pick Tony Darko because similarly there's some interesting time travel related plot stuff going on and the way the editing cuts things together either helps clarify or makes a mess depending on who you are mm-hmm. um, and I yeah in The Shining there's certainly a you know Danny has these visions because he has the shine so he sees things that are about that are yet to happen and things that have happened before mm-hmm. and when we when we start to slide into that steady sort of okay Danny's seeing these visions is right about when Jack starts to see like the bartender and we're, but he's in his visions. He's experiencing them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in the gold room. He's talking to the bartender, as opposed to Danny, who's sort of traveling through them like the kids in Willy Wonka's boat in the tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and it's such a sharp contrast to, you know, to Jack's sort of pleasing, slipping into the warm bath of building-based insanity or whatever it is, and you know, and to Danny who is sort of set up placed against the hotel for the duration of the film like he's not comfortable with the idea of going there Tony hates it you know everything about Danny is sort of butting heads with the idea of being in this hotel and from the start Jack's excited about it and so Jack starts to sort of meld with it in terms of his visions and his ghost experiences while Danny Danny does not meld at all are we meant to think that Jack has the shine, but he was drinking to cope with it. Well, see, that's a big question because, and this is one of the things I was thinking about because of a line of dialogue that I never remembered is the part when what's his face says, "You've always been the caretaker," and when you see the photo of him that was in what 1921, like part of me was like the first time I saw it was like, "Oh, he's sort of been integrated into this place," but then I was like, "Well, maybe. What if he's like some sort of reincarnation?" Like, what if he has been there before, and then 
he sort of was, you know, reincarnated as this other character and like, no, you need to come back. You sort need of to come like back it, and be... like every 20 some odd years. Yeah, new, something like that. New, yeah. You know, a new winter caretaker shows up to murder his family and rejoin the hotel. Yeah, like, like that was the thing is like, what, like the significance of that picture, like had that always been there or had that changed right. after he died and became part of the hotel? Mm-hmm. And, and in which case I feel like that was kind of more of the like like his role and, and why he said like oh around every corner i knew what i was gonna find you right. know like mm-hmm. that sense that he had been there before and um, he knows that bartender yeah like, and and the, the fact that he slipped in like the you said yeah, the warm bath because so this is his destiny this is where he was supposed to have been mm-hmm. you know and he quote unquote you know had been there you know had been the caretaker the whole time and it was just a matter of like coming back around maybe that was his tower you know where it's like, yeah, you've 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 always been the care. Like this is a cycle you're on, or something. So, like to me, I was wondering if that's sort of what it is that this sort of his supernatural interaction. Not that it's the shine, but it's it's another part of that, or maybe like the opposite end of that, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sense that like the the not the twins because they're not twins. The girls getting murdered with their mother mm-hmm. is not the first dark. Depraved oh, yeah. thing that's that very happens clearly there. Explained, right. I think. Yeah. right, the Between idea the of blood like, in the elevator and the, eventually Shelley's visions of the skeletons and right. yeah, yeah, and this weird orgy. Holleran talks about thing. how you know when bad things happen, there right. leaves something behind that only some people can see. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that was that was I think part of it for me was you know the the movie's named The Shining. So I feel like okay, the the focal point is this kid's like power, and and yes, it does help because he's able to communicate with Halloran and he brings the the, the, the snowmobile, which they're able to get yeah. out of there. But if he hadn't had the idea in the maze to backtrack and lose his father there, he could have been killed in the maze, and it wouldn't have mattered that he brought the snowcat there. Right. Mm-hmm. So like to me, like it felt like this missing piece that like oh, it would have been so much more satisfying if this ability of his because all the other visions he had were kind of like useless like how how much would those visions have actually changed the course of what happened and i don't think any of them did like they all still came true it wasn't like he was able to prevent think, anything I, I, but like that I would have been the one little find piece myself disagreeing like, in the positive now about like his visions were were warnings and insights and you know he was the one who was able to see the truth of the building not jack despite his integration with it not his mom who sort of floats between the two of them throughout the film he was the one who saw what was really happening. He didn't always understand it, but the pieces were there. And I think, yeah, I mean, he didn't end up putting them together in any particularly major way. But I also feel like, feel like but, unless it know. was the shine that had allowed him to like see the ghosts or whatever, he would have seen them anyway. I guess you the know, question like, is how much Tony is part of the shine, speaking through Danny. Well, and that's right. the other thing is, like, Tony seems to be... a part of his dissociative identity that mm-hmm. happens because his dad jerks his arm out of the socket like that seems to be the, the psychological break that's created this alternate personality in him I don't know if that's just explaining it away but like it's very Moon Knight <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean like th- this idea of a separate entity somebody who like locks and locks away these certain experiences so don't share this with your parents don't mm-hmm. like don't engage with this because you can't and he takes over when Danny is traumatized yeah. to the point of 
recoiling uh, from rum, it, red rum, right? Yeah. You know, and I don't know. Like, it's interesting to think of that psychological disorder as interacting with and inhibiting the shine, because that might be a thing that's happening too. Is that if if he's a, his personality is split in that way, mm-hmm. which I'm using the wrong terminology, but the idea that if Tony is experiencing the shine and keeping things from Danny, mm-hmm. maybe that's why it's disjointed. That's why he can't put the pieces together quickly enough to have any kind of basis. And I mean, that's explaining away stuff that the plot should be doing a better job of, if mm-hmm. that's the case. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I feel... I don't feel unsatisfied that there's unsatisfactory elements to this because so much of it is like ambiguous and like right. mysterious and like at the end I'm not I'm just so <laughs> depleted and like I don't know anything anymore speaking of ambiguousness you know? I have a gen- I have a question a poll for you both if you will okay. do you think it's more that the hotel itself is alive there's a living existence of about the place and that's what's driving you know this driving certain people to insanity and whatnot? Or do you think it's actual ghosts? People and event-based ghosts about the things that happened there? That well, they have that kind of throwaway line about it being on an Indian burial ground, which is kind of yeah, like... Yeah, where the, the fuck was that? It, Where'd that line come from? It's, I, mean, I, it's, forgot, I forgot that was in the film. And the moment he said it, I was like, what? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it just oh. kind of seems like a throwaway plot contrivance thing that, that mm. explains it away. I, I, I mean, I think that's the intent, is that... Mm defiled land right desecrated by western expansion and then the depravity that happens there is continued and perpetuated by the spirits that are unsettled by it i i mean that's that's how i process it you also feel i i feel like it's it's the type of thing where it's like the i think that there is a quote-unquote consciousness to the building itself and it's almost like it's collecting people who belong there you know like it's like you know kind of evil attracting evil evil. yeah you know like where you know i feel like there have obviously been tons of people who have stayed there without incident (laughs) but it's all the ones you know like like with jack where it's like he already has this history of oh yeah he he was a drinker and he would come home drunk and you know he dislocated his son's arm so it's not like he's this perfect gentleman and, and loving father and then all of a sudden he becomes this monster like the monster was there waiting and i think the you know the the place called to that and said hey you belong here with us because you know you're you're fucked up like the rest of us so you know do this thing to break away from your old life and you can live with us forever and party and have fun you know is are we meant to think that jack lost his job as a teacher because he yanked his son's arm out of the socket oh i don't know no. I guess he said it was a couple years ago, right? Like, they they lived in Providence? No, Vermont. They yeah. lived in Vermont, mm-hmm. and they had moved to Boulder five months ago. I think that's when he said he stopped drinking, right? Yeah, it was like, five for months. five months, so... Yeah. I don't know. Something that really seemed a little almost heavy-handed in this was the constant... just relation to alcoholism... As a thing, as a specter that haunts you, and right. a thing that calls to you, and a thing that changes who you are and whatnot, which I, I, I may be misremembering, but I think Kane mentioned in the book that the book is uh, certainly about it hmm. to 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 a large extent. Um, 
although it might have been a different book he wrote that I'm thinking about. Um, He's written many. <laughs> but in here, it just kept showing up, you know. First, they talk about it with Danny and the Doctor, and then he, um, he's ma he makes mention of it a few times and until he shows up in the bar, and that's when it's the, if anything, for a drink. And then it begins. <laughs> Everything just spirals downward from there. It's an interesting line that he says. I have got two twenties and two tens in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Just a straight like yeah, I don't like know if that's like a nineteen twenty one lingo. Like if that's also his identity, something he would have said at that point, yeah. or something like this echo or something. I just every time he says it, it's like that's yeah. very strange that you said it. I love watching him say it. Like yeah. it, it, the way he delivers lines is just crazy. Well, that's the other thing too. He knew the name of the bartender. Yeah. Was it Lloyd or whatever? Yep. Mm. So that's another thing that made me think like, okay, like he, he knows this guy like more so than just, oh, I knew what was around every corner. Like, you know, yeah, like does he belong there? Like did he kind mm -hmm. of leave and now he's like come back, you know, come back full circle. Mm -hmm. One of the other comments I made that I'll, I'll bring up in the podcast, I always think about that whenever I'm like talking during the film, like, oh, save it for the podcast. <laughs> but uh, the scene when he's at the bar talking to the bartender, like I, I remember thinking I said this, like I think that uh, Heath Ledger, when he was doing research mm. for his Joker, Took watched that scene. Here, Not yeah. so much Nicholson's Joker, but Nicholson in this scene. Yeah. Where, like he had a lot of like the little quirks with his hands and even like, like kind of licking his lips and like you know like kind of shooting off lines and kind of very like kind of turning one way or the other like with the the mood of what he was doing like like and and you know again it wasn't something i was looking for like oh let's let's watch every jack nicholson you know but it was just like oh man like this reminded me of heath ledger's joker like more so than yeah like than jack nicholson's joker or anything that's else. the thing like this character almost makes his joker look quaint yeah he's know? more joker than joker this like <laughs> it, it it's so much more scary I, mm -hmm. that man's face just has so <laughs> many he has so such a great control of his face the micro expressions mm -hmm. he's capable of are just mm -hmm. outstanding and the dude like that's why he got the Joker part is when he smiles and the different nuances to the ways yeah. he can smile are just it, it's it's like another instrument you know yeah. like in the, the same way like Mark Hamill's laugh can be musical or manic or mm -hmm. sad or ha like he, he has that versatility to that <laughs> like Jack's yeah, smile is like that absolutely mm -hmm. I will say I, as, a, as an exercise in communication through a screen you know everything to do with atmosphere and sound and visual and just every 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 frame of the sh of the film communicates something. There's no throwaway. I mean, there's nothing wasted. Yeah. Just glorious. You know, it's I, yeah. There's a reason they're showing it at film schools, and they should. You know, absolutely. Actually, though, I will say I think that was something that was fairly consistent throughout Kubrick's career, because you get a lot of that in Doctor Strangelove, and in um. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Ah, oh, man, name's gone. Uh, Such a and strange even, combination of films he made. I haven't seen Paths of Glory yet, his World War One movie, right. but I know there's a famous shot straight down the trench yeah. line, which is reminiscent of a lot of the shots we saw here yeah. with Steadicam. So, yeah, you know, as an artistic... Well, I think you used the phrase earlier, Joel, painter. Yeah. You know, yeah, a painter with film. I See, seeing this again makes me want to give... 
Space Odyssey another try. I haven't for the haven't sixth seen that time. Yet, I haven't so. finished it all the way. <laughs> also down with you. It's it's just I think because of the absence of setting in a certain extent, the idea that it's set on this spaceship and you spend so much time watching things move in space mm-hmm. that it, it's it's almost too alien. Like the idea that time is passing in this very familiar setting, even though it's kind of wacky in the way the different rooms are decorated, we've all been in a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, yeah. we know how they feel when they're empty and we know how they feel when they're full. Like the the kind of isolation that's accomplished in space, I, I doesn't latch on to me quite as much. And again, I, I think I said this in one of our first episodes where like I I keep trying to watch it too late in the day. It might need to be yeah. an eight a.m. get up and do it kind mm-hmm. of thing because mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's just this long endeavor. Tim, were you talking about how they they. Uh, the monolith being uh, signaling changes in perception, and then the intermission being right, the like monolith. the blank, sp- yeah, the blank screen is really interesting. That's the thing. Like, I want, I want to get out of it what people get out of it because this, I mean, it's this monumental film mm-hmm. in terms of how sci-fi works. You mm-hmm. know, it was interesting too. I remember my mom actually brought this up, and you know, brought it to my attention when I had watched it when I was a lot younger, and why it's hard to watch is like you're used to movies like you know Star Wars and Star Trek and you know and Firefly and there's you know pew pew pews going on and explosions in space and this is not that this is like real space like we're living in space this is just life in space and these things do happen and there are malfunctions and you know and it's like okay we've got to get our space suits on and it's just like five minutes of people putting space suits on and you know having this conversation you know and it's like and everything is so deliberate and slow but it's also because it's you know, it's yeah. It's not like all right. I'm gonna get in my speeder and go light speed to the next star system, right. and I'm gonna go in on the planet with you know. And we're gonna well, okay. We're not gonna watch that. We're gonna cut to the part where you're jumping down on the planet and fighting right. all the bad guys. You know, it's it's not that movie. You know, um, so it was really cool to kind of you know. It doesn't make it easier to watch, but it prepares you to watch it that way. To be like, okay, yeah, you're not gonna. This isn't an action film. You know, this isn't. Um, you know that sort of like. I guess you could technically assign people the role of hero and villain, but that's not really what you know what this is. It's sort of like you know things kind of playing out over time slowly. And that's something that Alien did very well with its setting. You know, was that this they're in this this you know transport ship. There's not a lot of space. Yeah, just what you need. There's no outside because you're in space, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it lives very much within the confines of that uh, ship it's setting. And that's, yeah, that helps quite a bit. And I there's think. so much about that that just communicated like, oh, space travel. This isn't glamorous, you know. Right. This isn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because they're just like freight shippers, right? Aren't yeah, they? Space just, truckers, right, as they like, say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that no? It's not it's deep purple. As the song "Space Trucking," yeah. <laughs> that's a deep cut. But um, that you know, something that from what you say, Tim, and as I said, I haven't seen two thousand one, but it seems to communicate very well. That just just existing in this place mm-hmm. is sort of a chore. You know, the things we take for granted to just get up and walk out the door are. Seems all the things about space that all the other space movies actively resist mm-hmm. through plot contrivances and cutting and those kinds of things. <clears throat> Kubrick yeah. was leaning into. Which is yeah. really interesting. Although there can be purpose to ignoring those things. No, for sure. Like, like the Star Trek TV series, you know, amazing cultural impact and 
plot, you know, purpose and weight. And he does it by basically explaining lots of loads and conveniences away with technology, you know, certainly everything has its place. One thing that w- that I thought about too that I wanted to to talk about, and this partially has to do with you know how how music was used in um, uh, in The Shining, but also you know it made me think back uh, like to two thousand one, and I think I may have this wrong, but I think originally like two thousand one, like he had created a temp score for it, and I think they actually hired a composer. And the composer did a bunch of music, and then he dumped it all and just went with the temp score, but never got the rights to the music. So, like, I think he ended up getting sued because he used all this music that, like, you know. And I think, like, I think the Blue Danube might fall into the category of like, uh, um, what's the, when something's like public a domain. public domain, mm-hmm. but like the, um, what the hell else did he use? Uh, uh, there was there was some stuff I, I forget. It's one of two composers. I forget which one, but like he had you, and he was he's, he was alive, so he was just like using his music, which I think also if you're using a re- pre-existing recording, like all the musicians right. on that recording, yeah. you know, like you know, so I think that was the case with that. And what I noticed with this one is it seemed to be a lot of Penderecki that he was using that I recognized. But what was kind of neat was it seemed like there were some times where I'd recognize something, but it would go in a different direction. So I was almost wondering if he's like kind of what he was doing with the actors doing that with the music being like okay here's this piece of music but i want this section and then when this happens i want to jump to this section so kind of almost cutting up pre-existing music and whether he did that with the recording or like took the score and kind of reordered pieces or layered pieces on top of each other even because there were definitely moments where i was like oh yeah that's from this piece but i was like wait a minute i think it does that after this not this and then where is this coming from i don't remember this and i could be wrong because i think it was a smattering of a bunch of different stuff um but yeah there were definite moments where i was just like huh but it's like well it could work because of the way it's like this so this music that's so textured based you know that if he he kind of went through and identified i want this texture for this from this piece this piece over here this texture goes here and then just kind of putting it together like this puzzle but like i could definitely recognize that those were from a pre-existing piece of music you know and you know that's something like you said with the Hans zimmer thing it's just like mimicked you know throughout all of like modern film scoring and um and yeah it's, it's it's interesting too because it's one of the things that composers outside of film were just doing like this is just how right. we're writing music now mm-hmm. and it finally made its way into film and i almost wonder if he hadn't been like stealing those things and just kind of putting them in there like if that would have ever become something that film court composers were going to integrate into the way when they write original music okay it's going to sound like this texture by this composer and yada 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 it's something's just clicked something else had a revelation not a drastic revelation so you know it's not interesting but that you know the shining is one of those movies that influenced many things that came after you know to say the least yeah um and something that's been happening I guess maybe for a long time, but very definitely in our lifetimes is there's a lot of hate for the stuff that that did that. But then there's also a lot of sort of backlash about that hate. Like, I, a great example is, you know, Seinfeld, which was refreshing at the time. You get someone now who watched, who's never seen Seinfeld, who goes and watches it and goes, wow, it's just boring. Right. You know, which is fine. Yeah. But then you get you know very bad very unfortunately you get the people who go how can you not like this it's the foundation for everything that came after I, they're not obligated to like it right to respect it sure 
you know, understand that it inspired and broke new ground and laid foundation. Yes, but that doesn't mean you have to enjoy it. It's and in that sense, The Shining is it's my my that you know mm-hmm. that I, I definitely see its influence, its fingerprints all over the place, and I respected what it's done. And we talked about what a great technical achievement this was, mm. but I just didn't really enjoy it. But in that sense, The Shining is the complete opposite of Citizen Kane, because I was I thought I'd like The Shining more than I did, whereas I thought I wouldn't like Citizen Kane because everyone says, oh, it's this awful old movie and it's so slow, and everyone talks about it like it's important but it's mm-hmm. dumb, and and I thought. I assumed that I was going to watch this and came, see a bunch of important technical influence, and then not enjoy it. And I loved every minute. Gotcha. And in that sense, they're sort of opposites of each other, because my <laughs> expectations were shattered in both cases. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I guess maybe we've just finally hit a film that's just not for me yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> because like I said, I can recognize the pieces, and they're pieces that I like, and I can recognize the accomplishments, but it just didn't, didn't click. So, yeah. I mean, which is, you know, it's, it's me. It is, is what it is. Yeah. I, I don't feel attacked by that or no, anything. It's, it's just I don't want like, you to. Yeah. <laughs> and I would watch it again with you, you know, if you ever wanted to. If it's actually legitimately getting close to Halloween here, it's yeah. September now, so if you ever want to just come over and watch The Shining, come on, we'll do it. Yeah. I'm totally down. Um, you know, because there's more to a film than than just whether you loved it or not. Right. There's the experience of watching it with people. Which is part of why we're here. I but, was so uh, fucking tense with everybody on the couch. Like, anybody <laughs> moved or anything. I was just like, I cannot handle this. Because <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was house-sitting. Oh, God. So I was by myself in an in, empty in house. An empty house Caretaking this, it. Oh. Yeah. So it's just like, that was a level of, like, tense and, like, every sound, right? And then thinking, we watched it earlier in the day, and we had, everybody was on the couch and stuff. Like... I was like, okay, this is a better setting for it, but didn't help. It just, it, it just, it was oh, just as bad for me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I will say, I I completely agree with your assessment of this as a Halloween film. Um, which I mean, we talked, we touched on it briefly at the beginning of this podcast. But you and I had a discussion one day about you weren't sure what qualifies right. and I was like yeah. what do you think about when you think Halloween and you, without hesitation you said The Shine it's great good enough done right. yeah. you know screw everybody else I I agree though um, I think the, the other thing is like Halloween is a time to marathon movies right mm-hmm. you kind of get this sense of like here's a series the <laughs> Halloween series and there's four, five, six, seven movies and if we're yeah. going to sit down and watch them all yeah. This is not a movie you do that with because it's so long and you're so invested in it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not like I, I consider bringing the first Tremors. There's six <laughs> Tremors films. Ah. <laughs> like I love all those films and Tyne and I watch them all the time. But like it's yeah, I mentioned a, Final Destination earlier. Right? Right? Yeah, similar deal. Or uh, the uh, Friday the Thirteenth yeah. movies or a Nightmare on Elm Street. Any those of the slashers, right? You know, like there's this sense of like scream. Yeah, this this kind of bingeable, like all of these kind of one note thingies. Like this is so engrossing and so it demands so much for, from you. You know, it's not the kind of the cheap scare or like the fun scare, right? Like you go the popcorn movie with your friends scare, right? Yeah. Like it's a different kind of thing. So I mean, I also thought well, about Silence that, of the Lambs, mm-hmm. or uh, it, but it certainly con- the Shining certainly conjured up something that felt. Halloween here. Just that, yeah, that sort sure. of unsettling right. dissonance about what's going on around yeah. you. It's, yeah, that felt very Halloween to me. Yeah. Coming, coming out of it on the other side, I can say I, I 
I see what you see in it. Yeah. Like I said, this <laughs> is this was the more most difficult one for me to pick up anything. Like mm -hmm. even my favorite film, it was like. Yeah, but I mean, a favorite's a favorite. Right. You know, you've got a favorite. Yeah. Choose I know you guys that. had yours in my like automatically. <laughs> like you brought the premise up, Tim, and you're like, I have it. Like, yeah. yeah. Tim <laughs> brought it up. I, it took me a little bit, but then I what I had to do, and I told you guys both this off recording, was I had to go to Wikipedia and look up films that have anything to do with the date of Halloween. Right. Or just outside or because you know there's a whole list of horror films are typically watched on Halloween. Here's a list of popular right. horror movies. But then there's also Halloween list of the specific. use of Halloween yeah. in film. Hocus Pocus is a great movie. Oh, That's another one that. I thought right. of bringing. You know, um, or Halloween Town, right? Like these, yeah. it's a different kind of thing. You could even um, what was? Did I watch a Nicolas Cage movie with any of you about Halloween and his kid vanishes and then one year later he's looking for his kid and it wasn't with you then, was it? But no. It, but it was that actually much better than I thought it would be. But Halloween is sort of incidental. Like, right. Halloween is the date that these things happen on every year, right. sequentially, and what the mystery he's unraveling. But the whole, you know, the sum total of the Halloween influence on the screen is, oh, there's a carnival going on. Right. Ooh, you know. The, but that counts. That's right. still a Halloween movie, sure. you know, right. And, and that's how I ended up being reminded of Donnie Darko, of, oh, right, the whole climax of the film takes place over a Halloween party. But, uh... Yeah, there are so many ways a holiday or a season or a time of year can tally with a film. Well, that's and what I thought was funny. Like, when I suggested it, I never gave a second thought. It was just like, like yeah, you know, and, and not so much that, like, I had a very specific idea in mind. And it's like, yeah, this is what everyone thinks of when it comes to Halloween. But, like, mm -hmm. anything that you're... Like yeah, it's hollow. It's October. Okay, you know, it's yeah. it's kind of like you know pumpkin spice. You know, it's like okay, it's fall. Pumpkin spice. Like boom. Right. Like those are two things that have been ingrained in our mind. Whether or not you enjoy pumpkin spice, like you can't help but <laughs> right. you know in your mind now associate those two things because yeah. of social media and you know and the way those things have been paired. But like, you know, it's like well, let's sit down and have a discussion and see how how pumpkin spice is actually relevant to the fall. But it's just like, no, it's just whatever. That's part of fall, you know. That's why we're here with these was, films. Was, what is it you think of when you think Halloween? Yeah. And this is like, like, I thought maybe like bringing in a Harry Potter film, right? I always think of like yes. Harry Potter very much comes in the fall and the winter. They have been released right? in, you know, in uh, November. Yeah. Pretty much all of them, I think. I, I'm not, not sure the last about two Fantastic Beasts. Christmassy, but, but yeah. Like, and and the whole the first film has that whole scene with the troll with the dungeon yeah. at Halloween. Yeah. Uh, the third film and book have Sirius Black showing up on Halloween. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The second has the Death Day party and the petrification of Mrs. Norris. Yeah, Halloween's a big event in in a number yeah. of Harry Potter stories. I, I, I even <laughs> considered uh, Macbeth because I have a PBS production of Macbeth where it's uh, um, Sir Patrick Stewart plays Macbeth. Oh, and it's outstanding. Mm -hmm. But, like, there are witches in that. Like, yeah, they, Double Double Toil and Trouble yeah, is it's, from that. Yeah, the, the quintessential witch line comes from Macbeth. From the like, play, yeah. So, I mean, I have a lot of material for next year, I guess, is what I'm saying, <laughs> if, we, if we survive this. No, that's, that's great. It's good. It's... Well, and, and that's the other thing, too. Like, you know, if... If it was like, oh, bring your favorite holiday film for like around Christmas time. Like if someone picked Lord of the Rings, 
because those were released every Christmas, and that's what we sort of then it's like, yeah, fine, cool, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, well, there's nothing in that has to do. It's like, who cares? Like you associate it with snow? Christmas. Yep. You know, well, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, right. But I could do that because that. So I, I think we've talked about it on podcast before. It took me forever to get through the fellowship. Yeah. And not for lack of trying. Right. Yeah. But every time I tried, it was late fall, early winter. Yeah. Like, I was traveling. That's, that would be like a Thanksgiving or Christmas movie for me. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I tried how many times, and it was always around that time of year. Oh, man. I could I could totally see that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are any number of reasons you might associate something with something else. And that's, you know, why we're here is to share. So, to share in each other's experiences. This turned out well. This was a phenomenal idea, Tim. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, because you can't you. see it, you know, there was a facial expression he was wearing at that. Yeah, that was just very sort of, you know, like, what, what do you think? You know? So uh, I know I said we shouldn't do this for time, but I think we should do another situational movie recommendation for this one. I think it might okay. be fun. Do, do why do you have one? Well, I, I have you come up with I have one. Yeah. Two ones that we could do. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean. And I can always cut it out are they if we don't want to. to yeah. Are they related to Halloween? Is that well, no, why I was going to say... No, no, it just... I had one banked, and then I had one was that it? I came up with now. Is it, what is your favorite mom- movie to argue whether or not it's considered a Halloween movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish. Um, maybe when we, if we have time on the podcast, we'll have that be the thing. Um, I was going to say, with, uh, like, your nuclear family, so brothers, sisters, and... The parents, or if you're an only child, your parents. What's what's the movie that you watch yeah. with them? Like, what movie comes to mind when you think you're gonna sit down with the nuclear family and watch a movie? Like anytime or just anytime. Like, anytime just when it. you're together and you like, Ugh. it's not one that you necessarily have to like fight about. It's something everybody likes. It's fun. That yeah. kind of thing. I can go because I have one. Then okay. go, Tommy Boy. Okay. Oh, nice. David Spade and Is Chris that, Farley. That's the one where he comes back from college and working in the factory. And yeah. Yes. yes. Okay, yes. Cat likes being replaced. Because <laughs> I, I don't know any, any titles today, but uh, yeah. There's a lot of people oh, in uh, eight years to graduate college. Yeah, yeah they're, they're called, called doctors. <laughs> Spray that thing for bugs? Shut up, Richard. Like, we can quote back and forth, back and We don't even need to yeah. watch it. Like, we, we sit down and we love that movie because... It's so silly. Holy shnikes. <laughs> Keeps hitting his head. So is mine. Hmm. I don't know if I have one, actually. I mean, I sort of... Okay, I mean, I do, and I will. I'll tell you in a second. But I, I don't think I have a regular one. Because... And it's weird to say now, because at the time it felt... Still sometimes feels new when I think, Oh yeah, Dad moved out. Mm-hmm. Still feels recent. Gotcha. Even though it's been... Uh, um, more than 10 years I think now <laughs> or, or maybe not since he moved but since he started spending less time at home etc so like I have to think way back to when we were all under the same roof a lot of the time yeah. and there were a lot of movies we watched together but I think it was a lot of taking turns picking I don't know if we ever sort of you know settled down over a particular one as the one but we did and it was a Christmas story Okay. And it was partially because no matter what else happened, we were usually all together for Christmas up until very recently. And, you know, 18 channels all marathon that 24 hours a day. Right. And we all loved the hell out of that movie. Gotcha. So I think that was the one. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because uh, we're going we're gonna to watch it on the podcast. And I want to save it for that. But um, I think that's the one, yeah. I, 
Although, we will touch on a Christmas story is, like lots of movies are, very targeted towards the, you know, white middle class family in a lot of ways. And it fit very well for that reason. Mm-hmm. And my mom grew up in an industrial town, so it felt sort of like what her experience would have been like. Gotcha. And my dad was in a, a suburb, what's, is it called a bedside city, I think, of New York? Where, you know, everyone takes the train to New York but lives in this suburb in New Jersey. And so it was the film resonated very directly and one to one with with my childhood understanding of my parents' experience. So I was definitely right in the crosshairs for that. Kind of like a vicarious nostalgia. Yeah, which, you know, I was definitely right in the crosshairs for it. Um, a film that might resonate so furiously with people in France would not resonate with me at all. Um I, I understand. I get it. It's a film made for me, but but yeah, that, that's the one, a Christmas story. Which because there are lots of a Christmas Carol and a Christmas story and a Christmas tale, whatever. The one I'm talking about is the one with Ralphie and the BB gun, and you'll shoot your eye out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Well, what do you think, Tim? Yeah, maybe you got something yet, or do you need to be quiet for ten minutes, which we'll cut? Well, what's 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 Tim's funny is like actually done that. I'm not for the record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to bust his balls about that. Yeah. Um, so I just, <laughs> I'm trying to both be joking and tell you, Tim, you can take all the time you want. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's probably in that same sort of categories, like, you know, the, the Christmas movies we would watch. Um, and uh, Christmas Story was actually one of them. Uh, but probably, and, and we discussed this earlier, as of late, one of the ones that sort of pushed its way to the top of my family's sort of uh, uh, Christmas movies is Four Christmases, huh. which, you know, it's kind of... This somewhat newer film, and I think we watched it once just because we wanted a break from some of our standards. It was just like, oh man, this is really good. And the next year, it's like, hey, we should watch Four Christmases again. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's um, with Vince Vaughn and uh, Reese Witherspoon, and they're this couple, and they don't do Christmas with their family. They go on these vacations all the time and make up some excuse why they can't see their family. And both their parents are divorced, so that's where you get the Four Christmases from. They have you know four individual places they would have to go. And there's a storm on Christmas Eve or whenever they're supposed to leave or on Christmas. And they, um, they're, they're, like the news is there at the airport like interviewing people who didn't get to go on their vacations. And they're on TV like about to board a plane to like the Bahamas or something like that. So kind of the cat's out of the bag. All their parents are calling them like, hey, well, now you can come visit. <laughs> so they have to go to each parent's house throughout that one day. And it's just it's it's great because you get it gets broken up so much by these four different completely different environments with each parent and and there's also like you know their their sort of their relationship actually evolves throughout the course of this day so there's like this super amount of like character development jammed in for them and you kind of go on this journey with them and you know by the end everything works out okay and um but it's yeah, it's one of those where it's not sort of the more traditional like yeah like oh the nostalgia and from from back in the day and and I feel like a lot of times, uh, you know the traditions you have are well this is what we did as a kid so this is why we're doing it like this started relatively recently so like you know I was in my twenties or thirties you know so it's like hey now we've added a new movie to the ranks of like what our our go-to thing is and I think that's part of it too we all know so many of the others by heart and can right. you know quote all of it it's like well do we really need to see that again or can we, we can just perform it for each other let's right. watch a different movie that we don't know as well so that's become more recently our, our go-to like whenever we're around you know when I go to visit in the you know around Christmas time in December that's one of the ones we put on um, we do that we did that with uh, another Vince Vaughn Christmas movie from Claus <laughs> which is hilarious. It's such a great movie. It, it might be my holiday movie pick, but yeah, 
something about that man in Christmas. <laughs> Just the <laughs> idea that he can improvise and go through those strings of dialogue at Christmas is a great thing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for watching The Shining, even though it killed a part of you, Scott. No, I, <laughs> I it didn't kill a part of me at all. I, I, I feel like I've failed you here. You no, know? no, no. I, as I'm, you mentioned, the pieces are there. There are pieces I like. It's a great technical achievement and historical purpose. And I didn't. And I'm like, I, like my, my allegory about the cake earlier about, you know, no why, why am I not tasting it? I'm not thinking, fuck this cake. I'm thinking, <laughs> I need to see a doctor. <laughs> so, you you know. should. Yeah. <laughs> Movie so, mumble no. MD. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't click with the film. No, know. it was um, a good discussion, though. Yeah, sure. I greatly enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching, watching it with you all. I certainly enjoyed more than the last time I got partway through it on my own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've, we've mentioned before on the podcast, having people to share the experience makes it its, its own unique experience. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, anything else anybody wants to, to mention, pitch in, forgot to say? I, um, I don't are we, are we announcing the, the next Halloween? Yes, because we talked about all three of them on the regular episode. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Regular episode. Oh, wait. We're not supposed to do it for regular If y'all start doing it for every time I say, you know, episode number 58 and you go, episode. Then I'm I'm out of here. I'm done. Um, stick a fork in me. I'm done. Uh, um, but yes, yeah, so our this was the first of our set of three special episodes. Special. Nope. Not plural. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, I feel bad about that one. Thank you. Um, to make a special cycle, a special holiday cycle for Halloween films. Uh, Joel Slaughter's off with The Shining. Um, Tim will be finishing us up with The Exorcist, and the next one you're going to hear is my pick, Donnie Darko. Woo! Which I'm very excited about. Um, just rewatched recently. And I haven't seen either of the, the films you guys have. Oh, nice. Ooh, I'm excited. So. Yeah. Tim, have you seen Donnie Darko? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool, cool. So we're sticking with our theme of two of us have seen it, which <laughs> tends to happen. <laughs> we tried to start the p- podcast on the premise that two of us had seen it, yeah. but... Nah. And, and per- for the first time ever in Blade Runner, we're going to get a film we've all seen. But we had right. all seen The Shining, right? Or no, you... I hadn't finished it. That's right. So, sort of. Okay. Blade yeah. Runner. Wow. Uh-huh. But, um, but anyway, so yes, Donnie Darko. Yeah. I really love all the little details and bits and pieces in that movie. Um, I mentioned, was it off podcast? that, Or no, it was at the end of the last one. We're talking about Blade Runner. So many of my favorite films require your attention, your yeah. focus through every frame, which is why I don't rewatch them much. But Donnie Darko really rewards you the more you pay attention, the more you notice where you get out of it so i'm excited yeah (laughs) i haven't seen it in a long time so i'm I'm, yeah i'm looking forward to coming back to it and you know especially with an with an older frame of reference you know and like you know because i think that was around my my blockbuster days there it is you know oh no we did reference it the last time i did yeah Yes, I'm deciding, debating whether to show you all the theatrical cut or the director's cut of Donnie Darko, because unlike Blade Runner, where we're watching the final cut, <laughs> I feel like Donnie Darko's theatrical cut is still good, mm-hmm. and the, the director's cut adds some more information, it tells you more, mm-hmm. which is helpful. The added information is definitely worthwhile. 
but the film alone is already so much to take in. I almost want to have your first watch just be the theatrical showing, and then we can watch the director's cut later. I'm happy, and to you'll have a big. you'll it's have fun. a handle on the basics so that the extras you can pay attention to the extra. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. We'll see. I'll rewatch them both before we record and, <laughs> and decide. I'm also interested to see like what the director's cut adds in turn because there's a <clears throat> there was actually a a theory that I have that was sort of someone when I was working at Blockbuster someone mentioned something that didn't quite sit well with me and then I kind of realized like built off of that like oh like you were close but I think it's actually this and I'm interested to see if the director's cut either adds or takes away from that theory Mm -hmm. so we'll discuss my theory after we watch (laughs) the film all right all right sounds good I'm excited Ooh, yes and you know I I would be less confident in this choice except for the way you, Joel, reacted to Evangelion, my favorite TV series. Mm. Because Evangelion is not for everybody. And it's complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. And you have to I, really I, I haven't told you that I've gotten mad props from all my anime friends who, <laughs> yeah, like, for having seen serious. that. Yeah, it's but a big it, testament, too. I mean, I'm, Tim, you said you've watched it and liked it, so I'm secure. Mm-hmm. But I would have been worried about Donnie Darko because it's one of the films in my collection that is not for everybody and is, you know, a little bit complicated and a lot going on. But but you and I just clicked so well for Evangelion that I'm I'm more confident. Yeah. Well, one of the things too with Donnie Dark was I feel like even if you don't get it the first time through, like it's such an amazing ride that you know it's definitely one of those where it's just like holy shit I need to watch that again mm-hmm. like like not like oh what what the hell it was confusing oh this is a piece of trash like mm-hmm. it's you're definitely engaged the whole time and then by the end of it you're just like okay. Like I have all these pieces swirling around, I need to, to sort them yeah. out. But like, but you want to, yeah. It's cool. it's not like I'm glad to hear or, you say that. <laughs> or, or it's not like you know. I think I've said this before. The Usual Suspects, where you're bored the whole fucking time, and then at the end you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I want to rewatch it so Kaiser I know what's so going so on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool. I'm excited. Ooh. Uh, man, both of these next films are going to be my picks, and I'm so excited about both of them. <laughs> the oh. Scott explosion. Yep. Today was a Joel explosion. Hashtag Joel explosion. <laughs> yep. uh, which, if it wasn't already clear, we recorded both The Shining and The Fugitive on the same day. Um, but it went well, I think. Yeah, for yeah, sure. The Shining hasn't suffered for it. So, experiment success. Um, one explosion down, two to go. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, it's going to get way sticky. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to hold my explosion for the last. Mm, yep. <laughs> keep it going. Keep it there, Tim. Yeah, so thank you, all for, thank you all for joining us, listeners. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. We appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. I'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at scott underscore w underscore murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at joelt18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard, And on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.